Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Today's case contains graphic details of murder, sexual assault, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Crunchy snow under your footsteps as you walk. Clouds exiting your lips as you exhale the warmth of your lungs against the frigid air. Bundled up under layers of clothing, hats, and mittens. These are some of the little things folks take joy in during the winter months. February in the state of vast Alaska is chilly. In fact, on Wednesday, February 1st, 2012, around 6 p.m., the temperature was just 3 degrees above freezing at a mere 37 degrees. Most people would be settling into their warm houses by 6 p.m. after their 9 to 5 workday. On the other hand, there are some people who might just be starting their work shifts, or at least be a few hours into them. Not everyone has the luxury of getting to work a 9 to 5 each day. This was the reality for Samantha Koenig. She worked at a small coffee kiosk named Common Grounds Espresso. The kiosk was located near a heavily trafficked road and was normally visible to the wandering eye. That night in February was different. There had just been a heavy snowfall days before, so the small, bright blue coffee kiosk was hidden behind several feet of snowdrifts. There are many of these small mom-and-pop coffee stands throughout Alaska, and usually they only ever had just one employee working there per shift, even on the evening shifts. This kiosk was one of the few that would be open until 8 p.m. that night of February 1st, 2012. This was something that Israel Keys knew, as he had been to these kiosks before. Israel was looking to go on the prowl again, only eight months after he had murdered Bill and Lorraine Courier in Vermont. Israel Keyes did not normally commit his heinous acts near his home, but for whatever unknown reason, that night he changed the very M.O. that had possibly kept him from being caught for nearly 15 years. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to zip up your snow pants, grab those boots, and let's walk down the icy streets of Anchorage, Alaska, as we follow Israel Keyes on the night he abducted 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. On the night of February 1st, 2012, a young man by the name of Dwayne Tortolani was due to pick up his 18-year-old girlfriend, Samantha Koenig, from work. Samantha worked at a coffee shop kiosk in town called Common Grounds Espresso, and the coffee shop kiosk closed promptly at 8 p.m. every night. Samantha Koenig and Dwayne Tortolani had been dating for nine months. The two had built a life together in a way. They shared a small bank account, they shared a vehicle, and they often shared rides to and from work every day. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary at first that evening. That was until Dwayne got an odd text from his girlfriend, Samantha. Dwayne had been running late to pick Samantha up that night, as his own job had finished up later than he initially planned. He arrived at the coffee kiosk, and when he got there, Samantha was nowhere to be seen. Dwayne would head home, not sure where his girlfriend could have gone off to. Sometime later, he would receive a text, supposedly from Samantha Koenig. At the time of receiving the text from Samantha, Dwayne was sitting at home next to Samantha's father, James. The text Dwayne received was along the lines of Samantha stating that she was having a bad day 
and that she had decided to go away for the weekend with some friends and to let her dad know. Alarm bells were immediately set off for Dwayne, as this text didn't seem like his girlfriend of nine months at all. Samantha sent the same sort of text to the owner of the coffee stand as well. After those two text messages, Samantha was unreachable by her phone. That was the last time anyone would hear from Samantha for several days. Two weeks would pass before any further communication from Samantha occurred. Samantha's father, James Koenig, would immediately go to the police the very next morning, on February 2nd, 2012, and report his 18-year-old daughter missing. Samantha's unexpected disappearance alarmed both he and Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, as this wasn't typical behavior of their Samantha, and those texts Dwayne had received didn't sound like Samantha at all. As James Koenig was going into the police station to report his daughter missing, the Common Grounds Espresso kiosk was being opened up for business that day. The employee who arrived for their morning shift noted that the kiosk looked to have not been cleaned up from the night before, and many of Samantha's personal items were still at the kiosk. Samantha had also left a note asking when her next shift would be. The employee wasn't immediately alarmed, as they assumed Samantha would return at some point for her items and to find out her schedule. It wasn't until a few hours later that the events of the night prior would come to light. James Koenig would tell officers that his daughter did not return home the night before and that this was very much unlike her. He would also tell officers that the text messages that Dwayne received didn't seem like Samantha. James reported that at 3 a.m., Dwayne had gone out to get something from his truck and immediately ran inside to grab him. Dwayne had seen a masked person standing near the truck when he had run inside to get Samantha's father. The masked person must have grabbed the couple's ATM card they kept in the truck. When the two men came back out of the house to confront the masked person, they had vanished. Realizing the growing concern over Samantha's whereabouts, officers reached out to the Common Grounds Espresso kiosk owner. Once in contact with the owner, they requested to look at the surveillance footage from the night before, in hopes of finding out just where or what could have happened to Samantha at 8pm that previous night. What was seen on the surveillance footage would rock the Anchorage community. The surveillance footage from that night at Common Grounds Espresso Kiosk would show 18-year-old Samantha Koenig standing in the kiosk alone at 8 p.m., waiting to close up the kiosk. Below is what the surveillance footage would depict. Before Samantha can close up the shop for the night, a man looks to walk up to the kiosk. He must have put an order in. As Samantha goes to give him the coffee, something happens off-screen, and Samantha Koenig immediately puts her hands up in the air. It is evident by her body language that something terrifying has just occurred. Samantha quickly goes and flicks off the lights of the kiosk. As she does so, the silhouette of a man jumps through the kiosk's open window. The man ushers Samantha towards the kiosk's door. The surveillance footage then shows the unknown man leading Samantha out of the kiosk and towards the parking lot. Once there, the footage shows the man putting Samantha Koenig into a white pickup truck. He then gets into the driver's side and the truck drives off. This footage is the last footage that shows 18-year-old Samantha Koenig alive. It was evident from the surveillance footage that someone had come to the coffee kiosk that night on February 1st, 2012, and abducted the 18-year-old teen. James Koenig leapt into action, gathering the community of Anchorage, Alaska together to look for his only child, his beloved Samantha. James Koenig did what most fathers would do in this situation. He advocated day and night for his missing daughter refusing to sit back and just wait for the news on what had happened to Samantha that night. The community of Anchorage, Alaska and beyond showed up for Samantha Koenig. 
Donations were sent in by the thousands, t-shirts were made, and flyers put up on every telephone pole or corkboard across the state. With so many people being called to aid the search throughout the tight-knit community, rumors began to swirl, as they often do in situations where there are more questions than answers. Neighbors suddenly began questioning the actions of others, wondering who may have had something to do with the disappearance of Samantha and where she had gone. Candlelight vigils had droves of people coming in and asking what they could do to help. This community may have been small, but they were a fierce force eager to help. In the midst of the community of Anchorage getting together, a ransom note would be left behind, the only single clue into the possible whereabouts of Samantha Koenig. The community became aware of how dire the situation was. After Dwayne Tortolani received a text message from Samantha, the message simply said, quote, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy, unquote. Officers went to the location spelled out in the cryptic text message from the assumed abductor of Samantha Koenig. Once there, they found a flyer in black and white posted on the bulletin board. It was wrapped in a Ziploc bag directly under the sign for a missing dog named Albert. Connor's Lake Park was the location where the abductor had left the ransom note. The ransom note demanded $30,000 for Samantha Koenig to be returned home. The abductor had photocopied a grainy black and white photo of someone who looked to be Samantha, with her hair braided and duct tape over her mouth. The picture showed a newspaper being held out that displayed the date as February 13th, only four days previously. Investigators in Samantha Koenig's family felt there was possible hope that maybe, just maybe, Samantha Koenig was still alive. After the discovery of the ransom note with the embedded photo of Samantha Koenig displayed on it, investigators would bring the photo to Samantha's father, James Koenig, looking for a positive identification that the young woman shown in the photo was in fact James Koenig's missing daughter, Samantha. James Koenig was able to confirm the photo did look to show Samantha Koenig, his only daughter. The photo seemed to have intentionally been taken to be grainy, which intrigued investigators as to why the abductor would go to that type of length in taking his proof-of-life photo. One thing that stood out to James Koenig was that in the photo, Samantha's hair was in a braid, and Samantha never wore her hair in that manner. It was something seemingly so small, but as a parent knows their child's taste in styles and clothes, and that minor detail stood out to James Koenig. Authorities and James Koenig worked together to deposit a portion of the ransom into Samantha's bank account. Their hopes were that the money would lure the abductor out of the shadows and lead them to the kidnapped Samantha. The only thing the authorities could do after the deposit was to wait and hope the abductor would make a mistake. And so they waited for days and days. Investigators worked with Samantha's bank so that once the ATM card was used, they would immediately be notified of the usage of her stolen ATM card. After a few days, they finally got a hit, an ATM withdrawal from Samantha's account. There were three withdrawals all within Anchorage and all for $500. As much as the authorities tried to keep up with the abductor of Samantha, when the withdrawals were completed, there were always just a few minutes behind them. Their perpetrator always seemed to just be beyond their grasp, still hiding in the shadows, only coming out periodically to make a withdrawal from Samantha's account. Every time they hid their face behind masks, never exposing who they really were. March 7th would come upon the authorities and Samantha's family. Their patience seemed to finally paid off, however, and that day would finally bring some small hope of getting Samantha back. Samantha's bank account had been silent after those first few withdrawals in Alaska. Then out of nowhere, there was an ATM withdrawal in Arizona, 
then one showed up in New Mexico, then a few days later, the same ATM card was used in Texas. Again, their suspect always wore a mask, but this time around, he made one fatal mistake. While investigators weren't able to see his face, they were able to get the details of the vehicle he drove, a white Ford Focus. Once investigators got wind of the white Ford Focus, they sent out a bolo for the car across the lower 48 states in Alaska. Corporal Brian Henry worked for the Texas Highway Patrol and was on shift that day. The corporal had seen a white Ford Focus that matched the bolo sent out while he was on patrol. Recognizing the vehicle from the bolo he had received, he watched the truck for a bit, realizing his chance to pull the vehicle over when it ran a light. That white Ford Focus was thus pulled over with the help of Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn, who had been with the corporal that day on patrol. When the two law enforcement officers pulled over the white Ford Focus, the first thing that piqued their interest was the driver's license the driver had handed them. That license would cement the fate of Israel Keys the minute he handed it to the officers. The corporal asked the driver for their driver's license, and he was handed an Alaskan driver's license, and bingo, the dots began to connect. The man who had abducted 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was named Israel Keys, a man whose name no one had ever heard of until that very moment, when a minor traffic violation would bring attention to him. When the corporal and ranger searched the vehicle, they found clothing that seemingly matched the clothing from the ATM surveillance footage. The biggest discovery of all, hiding within the metal walls of the Ford Focus, was that of Samantha Koenig's cell phone and her ATM card, items that didn't belong so far away from their owner. The most important thing was for investigators to make sure to keep Israel Keys in their custody. The traffic violation couldn't hold him long enough, and at the moment, neither could the cell phone or debit card possession. Luck was on the investigators' side, however, as one charge that they could keep Israel Keys held in prison for was using Samantha's debit card illegally. That charge was one that investigators would utilize in their back pocket in order to detain Israel Keys and later arrest and bring him into custody. Now that they had their suspect in custody after nearly six weeks of searching for him, the one question on investigators' minds that remained was, where had this man known as Israel Keys hidden 18-year-old Samantha Koenig? Once in custody, Israel's motto seemed to become, deny, deny, deny. It was Israel's instinct when he was asked about the kidnapping to lie to authorities. Evidence began stacking up against Israel Keys, though. Investigators identified the white truck from the coffee shop surveillance as the exact truck parked in Israel Keys' driveway. So investigators took their evidence and brought it forth to Israel Keys and his defense attorney. They were hoping to shock Keys into some form of confession based around the evidence they had on him. Nothing but crickets came from Keys during their first interrogation, but then, a few hours after the fact, Keyes decided to change his tune and stated that he was ready to confess to authorities. As we have seen with Israel Keyes throughout the entirety of this series, Keyes was very narcissistic and often boastful. Once he realized the ball was in his court, he set out to make sure he could make demands and began to play a cat and mouse game with investigators. The game would give Israel Keyes power over the authorities, power in which he could force people to play by his rules. Keyes wanted full control of the board and wasn't going to just give information away for free. He always wanted something in exchange. In this case, his information was the most valuable commodity to all parties involved. 
and Keyes planned to exploit that to its fullest potential. Once Keyes realized that there was no chance at freedom for him after his capture, his dark personality bled through. This was not the same man investigators brought in a few hours prior. Keyes had begun to have control over the room, and once more, he was an abductor. Only this time, his captive audience was the investigators and the Alaskan state's attorney. He laughed and told investigators he would tell them what happened so long as he received a cigar. Along with the cigar, Keyes also requested an Americano coffee and a peanut butter Snickers bar, all things that investigators would have to go seek out. Ironically, it was an Americano coffee that had sealed Samantha Koenig's fate that night in February. While simple items, these were a test from Keyes. He was exerting his dominance over authorities in hopes of testing his boundaries, finding weaknesses, and then exploiting them. His killer's mind was sharp and conniving, always looking to see just how he could turn a situation around to benefit himself. Details emerged as the interrogations continued. Initially, the information was given out in small bursts. Keyes wouldn't incriminate himself unless he was positive there was evidence that linked him to the actual crimes. He was intent on making sure he knew exactly what the Alaskan authorities had on him before he began sharing any information. Eventually, Keyes would decide to give more information on just what had happened to Samantha Koenig on February 1st, 2012. Investigators were closing in on the evidence that would finally incriminate him in Samantha Koenig's disappearance, and he knew if he wanted anything from this, then he'd need to cooperate to make the most of the situation and get something in exchange for the information he had that authorities didn't yet realize they wanted. So Israel Keyes began to talk and talk and talk. What investigators in Alaska hadn't expected was that the almost jovial, laid-back young man that sat handcuffed in front of them was one of the nation's worst serial killers that had gone completely unchecked for 14 years. Underneath the light-hearted chuckle, an innocuous young face was a monster, and that monster's mask had finally slipped off. Keyes would tell his tale as to what happened the night Samantha Koenig disappeared. The following is Israel Keyes' account of the actions that happened that night on February 1st, 2012, beginning around 8 p.m., when 18-year-old Samantha Koenig began to close up the Common Grounds Espresso kiosk. We will now retell the night of the abduction the way Israel Keyes had told investigators. The night Samantha was abducted started off like any other work shift for the young 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. That was until Israel Keyes approached the Common Grounds Espresso kiosk. According to Keyes, he hadn't initially planned to do anything that night. He'd idly had the thought that he could easily rob or even abduct someone from a coffee kiosk. And once that thought had embedded itself into his serpentine-like mind, he couldn't shake it. That night of February 1st, 2012, almost all of the Anchorage, Alaska police force was across town due to an emergency. Keyes knew their location based on the police scanner he kept in his truck. If Keyes was going to bring his fleeting plan into fruition, then he would need to act fast and do it that night. And so he went to the coffee kiosk he knew was open at that time, the Common Grounds Espresso Kiosk, where an 18-year-old girl was working alone that night. The surveillance footage from the kiosk corroborated Keyes' description of what happened that night. Keyes pulled into the parking lot and walked up to the kiosk wearing a mask over his face. He then handed a cup to Samantha Koenig and asked for an Americano. 
He planned to rob the kiosk, but he knew if the situation presented itself, that he would absolutely abduct someone from the kiosk if he could. Samantha went to make the coffee requested by Keys, and when she returned to give Keys the Americano, he pulled a gun on her. With the gun, he directed her to turn off all the lights of the kiosk. He then jumped through the window of the kiosk and told Samantha to get on the floor. Once she was there, he tied her hands with the zip ties he frequently seemed to use to subdue people when he would kidnap them. He did the same thing to Bill and Lorraine Courier when he abducted them from their home. Once Israel Keys felt that there was no threat of anyone seeing him or Samantha, he asked her if she had a car. She told him no and that she was waiting for her ride. Keys then made Samantha get up and walked her towards the kiosk's door. For a few seconds, the two disappear from view of the camera, but then seconds later, you see the two reappear in the camera, but this time on the outside of the kiosk, heading towards Israel Keys' white pickup truck. This was the last time Samantha Koenig was seen via video camera. Keys went on to say that during the walk to the truck, Samantha broke free and ran. Keys proceeded to tackle her to the ground. Keys then put an arm around Samantha and held a gun in his other hand, digging it into her ribs as he pulled her close to him. He then threatened her and told the terrified girl that his ammo is quiet, and if she does not cooperate, he would kill her. We can assume that just like with the couriers, Keys more than likely had a silencer on the gun. The two walked across the road to a parking lot that housed the killer's white truck. The lot was nestled between an IHOP and a Dairy Queen. Prior to the abduction of Samantha Koenig, Israel Keys had prepared his truck for the kidnapping by removing his license plate and making room in the bed of his truck by stashing away a toolbox that had been in the seat. Once Keys forced Samantha inside the truck, he drove into town. As he drove, he explained to Samantha that he was kidnapping her for ransom. Samantha pleaded with Keys and explained to him that her family did not have the money for a ransom. He then went on to tell Samantha that the community would help with the funds. He also told Samantha that he would release her once he received the ransom. He knew the whole time he weaved the tale of ransom around Samantha in the interior of that truck that night, that he was lying to the 18-year-old girl. Keys never had any intention of releasing her. He had no intention of her living past the morning of February 2nd, 2012. For Keys, this was all a game to see if he could get away with murder and possibly get some money out of the plan. He had wanted to try something similar eight months previously to the courier couple in Vermont, but hadn't been able to execute the plan at that time due to the courier's phones not having texting capabilities. On the drive, Keys realized he had one fairly large hole in his plans for ransom. In order to pull off the ransom, Keys needed Samantha's cell phone. And during the abduction, Keys had forgotten to make sure the 18-year-old's phone was with her. The phone he needed to make sure that his ransom plans could be pulled off resided back at the Common Grounds coffee kiosk. He then turned back, realizing his error, in order to drive towards the lonely little kiosk once more, where he retrieved Samantha Koenig's phone and locked the kiosk back up, so as not to arouse suspicions too early. He was trying to buy himself more time to make sure he didn't get caught. Once the phone was in hand, Israel Keys proceeded to text Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, and the owner of the Common Grounds kiosk, making sure to try and buy himself as much time as possible before anyone realized that Samantha Koenig was missing. In the text, Keys tries to imitate Samantha, telling Dwayne and the kiosk owner that Samantha wasn't having a good day and needed to get away for the weekend. Keys then took the battery out of the cell phone so it could not be tracked. 
is a trick that he'd used several times previously. Once Keyes was en route with Samantha, yet again he came to a traffic light. Samantha was sitting in the passenger side of the truck, tied up much like he had Lorraine Courier eight months previously. He had used those zip ties, only this time they seemed to not snap, and firmly held Samantha Koenig hostage. At the light, a patrol car pulled up alongside the white truck stopping at the light. Keyes worried that Samantha would take this opportunity to try and escape or get the cops' attention. It seemed that the 18-year-old girl instinctively knew that doing so would be a mistake, one that would guarantee that Keyes would kill her then and there. And so, Samantha stayed calm and quiet. Eventually, the light would change, and with that, the chance at freedom slipped away from Samantha Koenig. Samantha tried desperately to connect with Keyes, to get him to see her as a person and not just a would-be victim to this monster hiding behind a mask. She kept her head about her the entire time, even through her fear, she stayed calm when all she had to have been feeling was pure, unadulterated terror. Keyes drove around with Samantha for several hours, knowing that at some point that night, he would take her back to his home, hiding her away in the one place no one dared to look or enter, Keyes's work shed. At some point in the evening, Keyes forced Samantha to tell him the PIN number to her debit card, as well as the location of her card. That's how he learned of the card being stored in the pickup truck shared by both Dwayne and Samantha. Keyes then drove them to his home where he put Samantha in a shed that was located on the side of his house in the driveway, visible from the road. After Israel Keyes had rebound Samantha and put her in the shed, he turned his radio up exceedingly loud in order to drown out any possible screams from Samantha. Then Keyes left and went on one last errand. This is what Keyes was doing when Dwayne Tortolani came out of the Koenig home that evening, around 3 a.m. He was rifling through the couple's things in order to obtain the debit card he had forced Samantha to give him access to. Of note, Dwayne had actually driven back to Common Grounds only a few minutes after Keyes had abducted Samantha in order to look for his missing girlfriend. He had missed them by just a few minutes. Keyes was spotted by Dwayne that evening, but it was when Dwayne went inside to get Samantha's father that Keyes fled. With the debit card in hand, he then drove back to his home and the shed where he had tied Samantha Koenig up on his property. Keyes had abducted a young teenage girl the very night he was supposed to leave with his own tween daughter to go on a cruise. Keyes committed his monstrous act while his then-girlfriend and his very own daughter slept mere feet away in the home that they shared, never realizing just what the supposed family man was doing in the shed in their yard. Keyes knew that they had limited time as he had to get his daughter up shortly for the flight to New Orleans so that they could make it in time for their pre-planned family cruise. And so he began the slow torture of 18-year-old Samantha Koenig by drinking booze and smoking cigars. He would share the cigars with the now tied up Samantha, knowing full well that he planned to kill her within a few hours. After the drinking and smoking of cigars, Keyes then would sexually assault Samantha Koenig much as he had Lorraine Courier. Then after having assaulted the 18-year-old girl, he would stand behind her and strangle her to death. It is thought that Keyes may have stabbed Samantha either right before he strangled her or while he was strangling her to death. Then Keyes would wrap Samantha Koenig's lifeless remains up in a tarp and leave her body in the shed. He would then go take a shower and wake his daughter up to catch their flight to New Orleans, knowing that his girlfriend would never check the shed while he was away. So Keyes attended the cruise where he and his daughter were gone for two weeks. At that time, police became aware that Samantha was missing 
and the community began to come together to help put together money towards a reward for any information in her disappearance. Then two weeks later, Keyes returned to Alaska. Once again, he visited the shed where he had hid Samantha's remains over the last few weeks. He then proceeded to sexually assault her remains once more. Keyes would then try to make Samantha's body look more alive again in order to try his hand at getting a ransom from her family. That is when he braided the 18-year-old's hair, just as he had learned to braid his own daughter's hair. He then applied makeup to Samantha Koenig's lifeless face and placed duct tape over her mouth. Israel Keyes then decided to sew Samantha Koenig's eyes open so that she could look more alive in the photo. He then staged the Polaroid photo shoot with the Proof of Life newspaper and Samantha's lifeless remains. Then, he sent that text to Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, to tell him where to find the ransom note. While everyone was working to gather the funds for the ransom, Keyes' request had wanted 30000 deposited into the debit account of Samantha. Keyes would then go on to dismember Samantha Koenig's remains over the next several days. Once he had dismembered her remains, Keyes would drive to Matanuska Lake, where he cut a hole in the ice with a chainsaw. He then deposited Samantha Koenig's remains into the icy water below and proceeded to go ice fishing after having done so. He would even tell investigators that he caught a fish and brought that home. Inevitably, Keyes would slip up then. It is after the deposits were made to Samantha's account for her ransom that Keyes began to make withdrawals throughout Alaska and then on into the lower 48 while he was traveling. Those withdrawals would be his undoing and lead investigators to the white Ford Focus. It seemed that one small, minor traffic violation would be the thing to stop an unknown serial killer of 14 years. Keyes would then be brought back to Alaska for questioning and then sentencing. Once back in Alaska and realizing he had no chance of getting out of this, Keyes began to make those silly demands on investigators. His tit-for-tat requests such as information for a cigar or an Americano coffee, both things he had relished the night he sexually assaulted and then murdered Samantha Koenig. Maybe the request for cigars during the interrogation wasn't so far out of left field for monster Israel Keyes. It seems as though it was a trigger for reliving what he had committed. Keyes relished his crimes and would even get more alert and physically excited while telling investigators just what he had done to his three known victims. Keyes would then tell investigators what they were desperate to know, just where Samantha Koenig's remains were. By this point, they knew she was gone, but they wanted to find her body and give her family some form of closure. Keyes told them where he had put her in Lake Manitouska, and so the FBI sent in a dive team to find the 18-year-old's remains and bring them home. It wasn't long before the dive team came across Samantha Koenig's remains hidden within the icy depths of the lake. They painstakingly brought her remains back up to the surface and then began the heartbreaking job of letting her father, James Koenig, know just what had happened to his only daughter, his baby, Samantha Koenig, a job no person would envy at that very moment. Samantha would be identified and laid to rest. Her family left to grieve her loss, as well as a community who was there to be haunted by the events of February 1st, 2012. A monster would go to jail, his mask removed and in tatters by his side. Yet the story the monster had to tell was one investigators didn't see coming. Israel Keyes would be caught due to the kidnapping and murder of an innocent 18-year-old girl that night in February of 2012. But as investigators would soon learn, 
The murder of Samantha Koenig was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to the man they now held in custody. Keyes had more secrets to tell them, other than what lay below the icy depths of an Alaskan lake. We will pause here on this chapter of our series on serial killer Israel Keyes. Join us next week for the CTN Breakdown as Ash and I discuss just what we learned as we draw closer to the end of our series finale. And if you like this episode or any of our others, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. You can check out crimetimenerds.com for connecting with us via our socials and for other show updates. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.